0: Just before I begin this week's episode, I should say that it's about the murder of a young girl, and the description of the events is a little bit gruesome, so it may not be suitable for younger listeners. I'm Connor Reid, with words to that effect. The case of William Edward Hickman went to trial in Los Angeles in 1928. The accused was charged with the gruesome murder of a 12-year-old girl, and he faced the death penalty. The trial was reported all across the U.S. because it was the culmination of a horrific tale of murder and kidnapping, which had gripped the entire nation. The courtroom was packed for Hickman's trial. Defence and prosecution attorneys looking to make a name for themselves in one of the most high-profile trials of the decade. The public gathered to get a glimpse at this young man who had so violently murdered a little girl. But among all these people, I'm going to focus on two. Two very different men with very different opinions. The first is Richard H. Cantalon, one of Hickman's defence attorneys. Cantalon was utterly opposed to the death penalty, as he would later write he considered it barbaric and demoralising, and he noted that it was a sentence most frequently inflicted upon the poor or mentally deficient. He was convinced that Hickman was insane by any standard, and that the young man should absolutely not be facing the death penalty. The second man in the courtroom was a world-renowned author, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Burroughs' opinions very much reflected those of the general public, Hickman was a criminal and a murderer. He may be depraved or morally corrupt, but he was cold and calculating when it came to kidnapping and murder. It made no difference what some academic expert might say about his sanity. He was evil and deserved to hang for what he'd done. And so began the trial of William Edward Hickman. Candelon sitting at the front of the court defending his client. Burroughs in the press box, reporting in a long series of articles for the Los Angeles Examiner. But let's go back a bit to the murder itself. In December 1927, Edward Hickman arrived at 12 year old Marion Parker's school in Los Angeles, claiming to be an employee of her father's, a well known Los Angeles banker. Marion's father, Perry, Hickman explained, had been in a terrible accident and wanted to see Marion immediately. The girl was handed over to him without question, and they left together. The next day, Perry Parker received the first in a series of letters demanding $1,500 for the safe return of his daughter. The kidnapper gave himself a variety of names, including The Fox, the name which would later stick in the public imagination. When a time and place were eventually settled, Parker travelled alone to the arranged point with $1,500 in a bag. He saw a parked car with a man and a girl in the passenger seat and walked over to it. Although the girl was bundled up in a lot of clothing, maybe tied up, Perry could see it was his daughter Marion, and that she was alive. As soon as he approached the driver's window, however, Hickman grabbed the bag and sped off. To Parker's relief, the car stopped just up the road, and Marion was pushed out of it. Hickman drove away. But Parker's relief was short-lived. All was not as it seemed. As the coroner would later confirm, Marion had been dead for a number of hours by the time Parker and Hickman met. Seemingly, Hickman had killed the girl and begun to cut up the body to dispose of it, but when he realised he'd never get the money without a body, he'd attempted to stage the now mutilated girl in a way that she'd appear to be alive. He had bundled her up in heavy clothing, wired her eyes open, and rouged her face, enough in the end to fool her father at a glance. When the horrific truth was discovered, a manhunt of extraordinary proportions began. A reward was offered of $100,000, well over a million dollars in today's money. As Cantillon described it, a pall was thrown over the city and terror stalked the streets, frenzy obliterated reason. One man who fitted Hickman's description was arrested and brought to a local police station. He was immediately released when it became clear that he wasn't the suspect, but in the next eight hours this man was rearrested and then re-released seven more times. Another suspect, who it turned out had nothing to do with the murder, jumped from a speeding train as police shot at him. Another man was assaulted by a crowd before being dragged to a jail, where he later hanged himself. The police hunt was aided by aeroplanes and at that time they were still very new and extremely dangerous to fly. The Mexican governor closed the border, school attendance dropped noticeably as the hunt continued. In the end, after a week on the run, Hickman was caught. His fingerprints were found and matched to those in records. He'd been arrested previously for forgery. Police finally got up with him and the manhunt came to an end. Here's a newspaper report from the time. The Telegram says it has learned on good authority that William Edward Hickman has confessed to Los Angeles authorities that he alone is responsible for the murder of Marion Parker. That it became necessary for him to do away with her because he had, quote, told her too much was the reason given by Hickman It is understood for the crime. The crime was committed in a manner that is even more gruesome than the public has been led to believe, and it is deemed advisable by the Los Angeles officials to withhold the confession until Hickman is securely locked behind jail doors for fear that the details would fan into flame the embers of the lynching spirit that is said to have taken hold of the Los Angeles populace. And so, we can return to the trial. To Cantillon defending one of the most hated men in America, and Burroughs exasperated that such a man could even be defended. Cantillon's opinions and reflections on the trial are collected in a book he later published, In Defence of the Fox. It's unfortunately a little hard to find these days. I read it in a library in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a long story. But it's really fascinating, and it's great insight into the case and into 1920s America more generally. And Burroughs' coverage of the trial is equally intriguing... Edgar Rice Burroughs, whose name has largely fallen out of recognition today, was at this time world-renowned. His name was associated with numerous best-selling stories, most famously of all, Tarzan. This was a character you couldn't avoid in the 1920s and 30s. Tarzan was in pulp magazines, novels, comics, on stage, in the movies. So his creator, living, appropriately enough, in Tarzana, California, was the perfect person for the Los Angeles Examiner to draft in. It was certainly no harm that his coverage was both belligerent and opinionated, reflecting the public mood, as well as funny and sarcastic in Burroughs' typical style. In the end, the trial hinged on whether Hickman was not guilty by reason of insanity. Cantillon learned everything he could about Dementia precox, a term used somewhat interchangeably with schizophrenia at this time. In Cantillon's opinion, his client had religious delusions, heard voices, and had visions telling him what to do, and... As such, Hickman displayed all the symptoms contemporary psychiatry recognized as indicating insanity. In the trial, though, it was not only about demonstrating Hickman's insanity through his actions or words. Heredity was key, as it was in so many areas at this time. Who in his extended family was insane? Where had he demonstrably inherited this insanity from? If other insane family members could be found, this was a strong point in the defense's arguments. So Cantillon questioned Hickman's father to highlight the line of insanity running in the family. Hickman Sr. explained how his wife Eva, Edward Hickman's mother, had been institutionalised, although she was later released. She had seemingly threatened to kill him, the children and herself at various stages. He claimed she always had a knife or hatchet with her and that he often saw her standing over the children's bed holding the hatchet. Some of the details are revealing, though, given the power structures of society at this time. So, for example, one of the symptoms of her insanity was that she, quote, "...had crying fits and an aversion to sex and having children." Hickman Sr. ultimately left his wife, with the children, when Edward was seven. Other family members were duly brought to light. Eva's mother, Edward's grandmother, was reported to have had delusions and epileptic fits, and this was a time when epilepsy was very poorly understood and hugely stigmatising. Another of Hickman's cousins is described as a fitified fellow, an idiot. A variety of psychiatrists and doctors were brought in to testify to Hickman's insanity. They looked not only at his family and his actions, but also at his physical features. He was, according to one expert, abnormally short. His heart was abnormally small. His circulatory system inadequate. His beard was deficient. All very characteristic, it was argued, of dementia precox. Expert after expert for the defence highlighted the abundance of ways in which Edward Hickman was clearly insane. Changes in his behaviour leading up to the crime, his difficult childhood, and, of course, his heredity. As Cantillon recaps, the crazy grandmother, the psychoneurotic grandfather, the epileptic imbecile cousin, the schizophrenic mother. The prosecution, of course, focused on the aspects of Hickman's actions which showed him as rational and calculating, highlighting that he clearly knew right from wrong. The kidnapping was premeditated, and the series of letters carefully planned with warnings to keep the police out of things. He tried to evade capture, he gave a false name to the police, and he initially attempted to frame someone else for the murder. He knew what he was doing, and he should be held accountable for his actions. For Burroughs, this was quite clearly the case from the beginning. He writes that Hickman is a moral imbecile who, quote, does not care what the results may be to others, so long as he may gratify his abnormal egotism or his perverted inclinations. Burroughs also uses the language of heredity. This was a time when eugenics was a topic of huge public discussion. Eugenics is the idea that by encouraging desirable or discouraging undesirable people to have children, we could improve the future human race. Eugenics and inheritance were everywhere in the 1920s, an idea that seemed great, who wouldn't want a better future for the children, but was deeply problematic and flawed. Enforced sterilization of supposedly defective people was just one of the more disturbing consequences. So for Burroughs, as for many people at this time, Hickman is a homo criminalis, a born murderer, and his execution is not just a matter of capital punishment. It is in fact an act done, as Burroughs argued, in the interest of posterity. In the end, both Cantillon and Burroughs saw in Hickman what they wanted to see, and reflected the thinking and heredity and insanity at this time. And the trial raised so many issues which continue to be debated. Our contemporary understanding of mental health may be radically different from that of a century ago, but debates about definitions of insanity, legal culpability, capital punishment are obviously not going away anytime soon. Hickman was found guilty, and after an appeal, he was condemned to death. On the 19th of October, 1928, William Edward Hickman was hanged. Cantillon and his co-counsel were the only mourners at the funeral. For school not far away And no one dreamed that danger Could come to her that day And then a murderous villain A fiend with heart of stone Took little Marion Parker Away from friends and home That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. A slightly different show this week. I thought I'd experiment a little and do a full story with no guest. I hope you liked it. Let me know. I'm on Twitter at Ced Reed, eid, or you can get in touch on Facebook. For more on Hickman, lots of other episodes, articles, and lots more, you can go to the Words to That Effect website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. Special thanks this week to Overhead the Albatross, whose music you heard throughout this episode. You can check them out on Bandcamp, Spotify and all the usual places and there are links on the website too. The ballad you heard at the end was one of a number of Marion Parker ballads from this time. and Links to the recording are on the site as well. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to spread the word about the show. Tell all your friends and I'll see you in two weeks.